This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.com. Our Old Testament scripture reading this morning will come from the book of Genesis, chapter 22, verses 6 through 18. Then we will have our New Testament scripture reading, which will come from the book of Hebrews, and that New Testament reading will be what the sermon today is based upon. Uh, But first, our Old Testament scripture reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 22, starting in verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order to in order, and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice." And now our New Testament reading from the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. 
We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning as we get to continue um, our series in Hebrews. We're going to clean up from chapter 6, verses 13 to 20, and then we're going to pause for a few weeks as we focus on the advent of Christ specifically, and then we're going to come back to Hebrews, picking up uh, chapter 7. But before we do that, um, we're going to close with a certain promise that has been given. And so let's just take a moment and just ask the Lord to to guide and direct as we uh, prepare our hearts. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in your house. We thank you, Lord, to be able to sit under your word and to know that your word is true. God, we are a blessed people. We're blessed because you love us. You love your church. You sent your son to die for her. And Lord, we are are astounded at the depths of your love for us. Lord, we pray that as we sit in this place, sit under your word during this hour, that our hearts would be directed to you. Lord, we pray that we would have ears to hear and and eyes to see. We pray, God, that you would speak and that we would listen. God, I pray that you would do in us what is right and perfect. The Holy Spirit, come and bring conviction. In those areas where we need to be convicted, bring hope to those areas in where we are hopeless. Lord, I pray that we as a body of Christ would seek always to glorify you. Lord, I pray that you would do your work in us and that we would be changed, that we would be more and more like your Son, our Savior. Lord, I pray that you would use my mouth, that I would not say anything more nor less than you've given me to say. But God, I pray that I'd be faithful to your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. Certainty. Certainty is something each and every one of us desires. Especially in the case of living in this world, which is often, at least feels, so uncertain. Think about how easy it is to go and buy a product and immediately they offer you a warranty. And you begin to wrestle in your mind, should I buy this warranty? Are they saying and acknowledging their product's no good? (laughs) Or are they ultimately telling us that it's better to have a warranty for the day that comes when the product breaks? Sometimes we buy it, sometimes we don't, but when we do, we sure hope that it was money well spent. We sure hope that the actual promise of the warranty would become validated and that we would be protected. As children, it's hard to receive promises in the aspect of not the promise, but the waiting. As children, when we receive a promise, we're excited and we're, we're looking forward to it. Or we're, we're anticipating what is to come, but it's the idea of waiting that is so hard in the promise. Scripture is filled with the promises of Scripture, and these promises find their reality in Jesus Christ. 
And these promises are the assurance of salvation for those who trust in him. That's the gospel. Assurance of salvation for those who trust in him. In the 1500s, that's what the Reformation was really returning to. See, the Reformation was not only a return to Scripture, it was a return to the assurance that's provided in Christ alone. Assurance. Certainty. That's what we can have in Christ. And yet there's a sense in which we often are living in the in-between. We're waiting to experience or to fully realize that assurance. The people to whom the writer of Hebrews is writing are people that are wavering in their faith. I've said it repeatedly throughout this series. These people are wrestling with going back to their ways of Judaism. They're, they're, they're contemplating leaving Christianity. And constantly throughout this book, we've seen pastoral warning after warning after warning aimed at these individuals that they should hold on, hold fast to the truth of Christ. In one such warning, which we looked at last week, we saw the seriousness to wandering away. And yet there in chapter 6, verse 9, look at it in your scriptures, we read these words. Though we speak in this way, with warnings he's referring, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. The writer is offering assurance. He uses an interesting word. He calls them his beloved. It's a term of, of endearment. It's a term that's reserved for close family and friends. Beloved. He talks about the confidence he has in their faith because of the fruit of their faith, which is their works. We see it there as it's, it's pictured in what they do. The writer of James in James chapter 2, verse 17 says, Faith without works is dead. But works are a fruit. And the writer of Hebrews is now declaring the assurance that can be had in Christ. And we're going to see in this short passage, verses 13 through 20, the three reasons why he offers this assurance. The first of which is a testimony or a witness of assurance. Look at verses 13 through 15. We read this, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom he could swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. The testimony or witness of assurance that the writer uses specifically is the testimony of Abraham's life. He uses this to assure the reader that God can be trusted, just as he was with Abraham. In verse 13, he focuses on the promise to Abraham. If you know anything about Abraham's life, you, you read back in Genesis chapter 12 that he was just living with his father in Ur of the Chaldees. He was doing what other pagans do. He's just doing life. Nowhere are we told in Scripture that Abraham was busy seeking after God. But get this, God was busy seeking after Abraham. What a profound truth that God is searching and working and ministering in our lives to draw us close to him, the calling he has placed upon his people. 
In fact, when he calls Abraham in chapter 12, we read this blessing that he promises to Abraham, a man who's not earned it, but is given grace by it. Listen to the blessing in Genesis chapter 12, beginning at verse 2. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Again, Abraham did nothing for this blessing, but God in his grace chose to bestow upon Abram all these blessings. Interesting enough, the writer of Hebrews draws into focus one of those blessings, the very heart in which he wants to talk about, about God's faithfulness. We see this in specifically verse 14 when he says, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. That's the reference the writer of Hebrews is referring to as he's trying to encourage the people who are wandering. Notice God's faithfulness. Notice the testimony of God's faithfulness to Abraham. Trust in it. God is faithful. He did what he said he would do for Abraham. Do you know that in Abraham's life, God repeatedly gave that blessing? Not only in Genesis 12 that we read just a few minutes ago, But he gave it again in Genesis chapter 15. In verse 5 he said, And God brought him, Abraham, outside and said, Look towards the heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Look how much I'm going to bless you. Look at how many are going to be found in your lineage. But then he did it again in Genesis chapter 17, verse 4. He said, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. And yet he did it again in Genesis 22, verse 17. That was the text that was read before we began preaching. In that text, he says, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. What is ultimately the writer of Hebrews really doing by picking out the promise that God gave to Abraham? That God is faithful. He's trying to say you can be certain of God's promise. When God says something, God will do it. Just look back to Father Abraham. In church. We are the lineage of Abraham. You say, well, wait a second, we're not Jewish. Paul deals with this in Galatians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. He says, the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. He's saying the gospel was there in the Old Testament. Preach to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. See, we as the spiritual seed of Abraham, we have faith in what Abraham had faith in, the promise of God, specifically in reference to a seed. Galatians chapter 3, verse 16 goes on to describe this when it says, Now the promises that were made to Abraham and to his offspring... It does not say, and offsprings, referring to many, 
but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. See, if you're in Christ, you are part of the lineage of Abraham, the one who was saved by Christ, the promised one. See, this is the point that that the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's saying, look at the past and see God's faithfulness to Abraham. You yourselves are part of the blessing of that promise. But see, that promise did require patience, didn't it? In verse 15 of chapter 6 of Hebrews, the writer says, And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Again, I say the hardest thing to do is to wait for a promise to be fulfilled. And the story of Abraham goes something like this. Abraham received a promise at age 75, but his son, Isaac, wasn't born until he was 100. Interesting enough, we read the story where he was to bind up Isaac, place him on an altar he had made, and prepare to sacrifice him. And as he was prepared to do that, God said, wait! And then God gave a promise, an assurance that Abraham would be blessed because of his faith. His seed would be those based upon his and their faith in the promise of God. See, the writer of Hebrews is using Abraham as a testimony of God's faithfulness. He's telling us we can wait in confidence and trust God that he will fulfill what he's promised. I mean, think about Abraham. He waited 25 years for that son to be born. Then he goes to sacrifice him, and God says, wait yet more. There's more to be shown because Abraham never saw the many children that would come from him. Not to the lengths that it was described, sands of the seashore, stars in the heavens. That's a picture of the Gentiles coming in. The blessing of what God was doing through the promise of the gospel. The preaching of the truth. A truth that Abraham believed. To church, seeing God's faithfulness in the past should encourage us now and into the future. The question is, are you trusting? Are you resting in the finished work of God's promise, Jesus? The writer of Hebrews doesn't just simply say, look to the past. He also says, look at God who makes the promise. He says, look at the unchanging promise of assurance. Not just to the the witness of assurance in the past. Look to the unchanging promise of assurance. He does this in verses 16, 17, and 18. Draw your eyes to verse 16. It says, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desires to show most convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for the refuge may have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. In this, the writer of Hebrews, again, is not saying simply look to the past, the past witness of Abraham. No, look to the character of God. Look to the character of God. In verse 16, he says, people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath actually is used to confirm. 
You know why that's necessary to not only have a promise, but to actually take an oath? And the place where we see it is in the courtroom. You know why it's necessary? Because we live in a fallen world. People don't keep their promises. That's why when you go into courtroom and you're going to be used as a witness, they're not just simply good with you showing up and telling us what you have to say. They want you to be sworn in under an oath. The judge administrates that oath, requiring you to swear by someone greater than yourself, invoking the name of God. Because we live in a fallen world. That's why oaths are necessary. Promises aren't enough. And we as people, we, we've grown up to wonder, will the, will the warranty last? Will it actually work? Because we're so used to the brokenness of this world. And yet look what God says in verse 17 of chapter 6. So when God desires, notice the word desires there. It's out of love. His, his, his desire for you to encourage you. That's God. He, he has a heart for his people. So when God desires to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose. What does he do? He grants an oath. Why does he do that? Why does God grant an oath? God grants an oath not because he has to prove himself, but because ultimately to encourage us. See, God adapts himself to the ways of man when he speaks to man. God condescends, is one way a, a, a commentator would put it. He condescends to man, speaking in a way that's understandable to men. See, it's not simply enough to have the promise of God. We want God to take an oath. Abraham doubted and he was worried. And so God took an oath, not just simply gave him the promise of blessing. God went to great lengths to encourage Abraham. God cares about us that much. He wants us to be encouraged. Church, don't miss that this morning. God wants you to be encouraged. Encouraged in his own character. Encouraged in who he is. Encouraged in the promises he makes to his people. He wants you to be convinced. See, the point is, God's character is one in which he tells the truth. In fact, our text says he doesn't lie. But what's interesting here is the fact that God actually has a will and a, and a purpose and a plan. And we need to understand that this purpose and will and plan was in covenant. God went to great lengths in promising and, and making an oath in covenant that his will would be done. It's not because in any way that it wouldn't, but to assure us, to convince us, to encourage us. Because he desires for us to believe to trust him as the church. He does this by promising and also taking an oath. This combination of promise and oath is given to assist and to encourage us that God will actually do what he promises. And church, understand, God's word is sure. Again, look at verse 18. So that there are two unchangeable things. That's a reference to the promise and oath because of whose character they're made up in. But then it goes on to say, in which it is impossible for God to lie. God is a truth speaker. He is not a liar. His character is one of absolute holiness, truth, 
what he says we can bank on. In Numbers chapter 23, verse 18, it says, God is not man that he should lie. And yet he has promised and taken an oath to encourage us. In James chapter 1, verse 17, it says, in whom there is no variation or shadow of change. In John chapter 17, verse 17, he says, your word is truth. God's word is sufficient. And God's word can be completely, completely trusted. What God promises to do, he will do. As a young man, I remember I was probably about the age of 16, somebody in my church had given me one of those promise books. Some of you may be familiar with it. It's a, it's a book with, filled with Scripture, but it's usually themed, like under hope or if you're feeling discouraged or you feel anxiety. And there's a list of Scriptures, one right after the other. And I remember when I first received it, it, it what most teenagers do, it just finds its way somewhere into a drawer, right? But I remember when I was beginning to, to struggle with some things, and I remember stumbling upon that book, and I remember opening it up and finding the place where it talked about anxiety, it talked about hope, and I saw one scripture after another scripture. I remember having the thought, this is the word of God. God's word can be trusted. What he says he will do. Church, that's the encouragement this morning. What God says he will do. We live in a world full of uncertainty, but God is certain. He has gone to great lengths to assure his church of his certainty. He's gone to great lengths not only to promise, but to also make an oath of his covenant for his people. That's amazing. One commentator says it this way. He says, the covenant God is the promise-making, promise-keeping, and promise-performing God. He is in every sense the God of the promises. What God says, he is promise-keeping because he is promise-making. And guess what? He is promise-performing. Isn't that the picture of Abraham's life? Remember in in Genesis chapter 15 when Abraham is uh, still fearful? He doesn't have his son yet. He is not even sure how he could have a lineage. He's getting old. and, and, And God meets him there. And God tells him to take an animal and to cut it in half and to lay the parts open. And the idea was uh, uh, cutting a covenant. And that ultimately God says in that, normally God would say, here's my promise. Now I'll uphold my end. Now you walk through it and, and may it happen to you if you don't uphold your end. But that's not what God did. What God did, he said, cut the animal in two. And you know who walked through it? God. God walked through it as a performing, promise-keeping God saying, may it be done. Church, I don't know about you, but that's encouraging to me. That God goes to the lengths that are necessary to save his people. And then the writer says something. He talks about those who fled for refuge. This is where he's really aiming at the heart of the people he's writing to in the book of Hebrews. He's talking about our need for refuge. Our concerns and worries, the heartbreak, the frustration, the struggles that life presents itself with, but ultimately the struggle against sin. And he says, for those of you who are are fleeing for refuge, know this, God doesn't lie. Know this, God has his, his unchangeable character. He has, he has made a promise. He has made an oath. And he's done that so that you can flee to him. 
that you can run to him, that you can cling to him, because he has fulfilled his promise. So church, I ask you, are you resting in the promises of God? Are you resting in his oath that he made to Abraham, that that he is faithful to his covenant, that there is a seed who has come, and that seed is providing the way of salvation. That seed has performed all that was necessary for you to be saved. Are you trusting? Are you resting in him? Is your confidence in the unchanging character of God? It should be. See, for God keeps his word, doesn't he? As the writer says, God doesn't lie. And then finally, he uses one-third illustration, not only the testimony and the witness of assurance, not only the unchanging promise of assurance, no, he goes to actually talking about the anchor of assurance. In verse 19 and 20, this is what it says. In verses 19 and 20, he says this. For we, for we have this, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Look at the confidence he writes this. We have this, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The anchor of assurance. He describes that anchor as sure and steadfast. In verse 19, he's talking about the anchor when he describes it as sure and steadfast. An anchor for the soul. Church, you know an anchor is a great help? It holds you fast against the waves that beat against you. Jesus is our high priest, is our anchor. That's what chapter 7 is going to go on to explain. That Jesus, the high priest, the one who came from the order of Melchizedek, he is your anchor. In him, hold fast. For he's sure, he's steady. He won't let you down. But the writer does something else. He wants us to see the location of that anchor. Don't miss this. See, anchors are important, but anchor is no good to you on a deck. An anchor is no good to you at the bow of a boat, just just sitting there. An anchor is only good to you where it's located in the water. And as it's in the water, it's securing you, it's holding you fast. The, The anchor is keeping you. So where the anchor is matters. And he describes where our anchor Christ is. He's gone before. He's in the holy of holies. And Jesus is in the heavenly sanctuary. And Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. And understand this, because Jesus is there, we can have confidence that we are there because we are in him. We are in the seed of Abraham. And this is the hope. This is the confidence we can have. Our Savior, as described here, is behind the curtain. Do you know what happened to the curtain? When Jesus went to the cross in Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse 50, he says, And Jesus cried out again and a loud voice, and he yelled and gave up his spirit. Then verse 51 says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. But look at the direction it's torn from. Not from bottom to top, but from top to top bottom as though God was saying his sacrifice is acceptable 
What he offers as a high priest, as the Lamb of God, he himself being the sacrifice, is acceptable. You now have entrance into the holy place. You have access to me. See, what he's saying is Jesus has fulfilled the law. And Jesus has made all of those who are in him perfect. Granting us access to the holy of holies. This is the assurance we can have, not because of ourselves, but because of him. You can almost hear the writer of Hebrews say, so don't be foolish. Don't abandon Jesus. Understand that he is your anchor. Hold fast, he says. Cling to Jesus. Verse 20, he describes Jesus not just as an anchor, but an anchor that is in the holy of holies. And as this, he is our forerunner on our behalf. We have access to God because of him. Jesus has gone before us through the cross. He's paid for our sin. Through the resurrection, he's defeated our enemies. Through the ascension, he gives us access to the Father, making intercession for us, praying to God on our behalf. And we can have confidence that he's doing it. Because God doesn't just make promises. He performs them. He fulfills them. And that's the confidence we as his church can have. In John chapter 14, verse 1, a verse that's often used at funerals because of the encouragement it offers is a piece of the understanding of what it means that we have Jesus as our forerunner. Listen to what John writes in John 14, 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. This is Jesus speaking, John writing, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? If my word not trustworthy? Believe me, he says. And if I go and prepare a place for you, look at this. I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. What a special promise. What certainty is offered. Paul writes it slightly differently. He talks about Jesus as the forerunner. He refers to our, our physical bodies in 1 Corinthians 15.20 when he says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, that's his term for forerunning. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Because Jesus resurrects, we too will resurrect. Don't lose hope, even though you have to wait patiently for that glorified day. Don't lose hope. Trust in confidence. My word is true. Look to Abraham. Look at my character. Look to the anchor. Trust. Trust Jesus. Are we trusting Jesus? We trusting Jesus as our high priest? Are, are we truly resting in him as the anchor in the midst of our storms? Church, be encouraged. You can have confidence. He is trustworthy. He will not let you go. Church simply said, God's covenant, his promise, his oath is to save believers in Christ. He doesn't lie. He keeps his promise. Understand this, church. In Jesus, we are always safe. Not mostly safe, but perfectly safe. He's our anchor. 
Church, did you know that the anchor became the symbol for the early church? They found it in, in tombs. It was, it was marked on there, much like the fish and the cross. The anchor was a symbol for the early Christian community. It signified their safety in Christ. It meant something. It should mean something to us. God's word is true and we can believe it. The call of the writer here is to place your faith in Christ, to trust him as your anchor, to hold on tightly to the promises he has given. Pastor and author Ian Hamilton, he, he summarizes it well when we, we misunderstand this love that God has. He says simply this, Jesus came in the world not to win or to secure the love of God for sinners. No, Jesus came as the gift of love of God for sinners. Don't miss that. Jesus came in the world not to win or secure the love of God for sinners. No, Jesus came as the gift of love. The gift of the love of God for sinners. See, the point is we're already loved. We are loved in Christ. We are loved by God in Christ. See, it's often wrongly said that God the Father loves you because Christ died for you. Hear that? It's often wrongly said, God the Father loves you because Christ died for you. But it's actually appropriate to say, because God loved you, Christ died for you. Because God loved you. That's why Christ went to the cross. You say, well, Aaron, where are you getting that from? One of the simplest verses in all of Scripture. John 3.16. For God so loved you, that he gave his one and only son. God loved you. He sent his son because of his love. As one man said, Jesus isn't wrestling love from the Father for us. Jesus isn't there like, you're going to love him. You're going to love him. I'm going to make you love him. No. Jesus is simply demonstrating the Father's love when he went to the cross. That's how much you're loved. Church, that's how much you're loved. The covenant of God is unbreaking. The sending of his son was the fulfillment of that promise. That's how much we are loved. That God would not even hold back his own son from us. That's how much we are loved. Church, we must trust. The past tells us and witnesses to us of God's faithfulness. God's character testifies of God's faithfulness. And the anchor assures us of God's faithfulness. I truly believe that this passage in Scripture is probably one of the strongest assurance passages in the entirety of Scripture. As a writer is writing to assure the people of God's love. May we trust in the finished work of Christ as it testifies of God's love for us. Let's pray. God, as we close our Bibles, may the resounding voice that is seen in Scripture regarding Christ 
regarding the actions of Christ given by the Father, rooted in the Old Testament promise to Abraham, may we truly see the faithfulness of our God in his promises, his covenant, his oath. God, help us to believe even when the world would tell us we're foolish. Help us to trust even in the midst of the storm. May we sense that anchor that has been given for us, that sure and steadfast hope. God, strengthen us and build us and encourage us now, we pray. We pray believingly in Jesus' name. And God's people said, This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.com.